They all said it was the biggest thing ever. They said that it was so incredibly huge, so incredibly powerful, that it was going to leave absolutely no doubt that they had the knowledge, the tools, the power, and most of all, the willingness to use those in order to solve one of the world's or modern economic history's most intractable problems. But instead, by being the biggest failure ever, it has first done us a favor of sorts by proving without a shadow of a doubt they don't have the knowledge, they don't have the tools, and that they've been lying to you the whole time. But that then has left us with an even bigger problem, one that we are confronting right now. Now, in order to understand what I'm talking about, what we're really, what we're really confronting here, what we're really facing, we got to go back to the late 1990s. The, the seeds to the, the failure were sown by none other than Mr. Paul Krugman or Dr. Paul Krugman, who in the late 1990s looked at the Japanese economy and said, I've got the answer for all of you. They had already lost a decade of the 1990s after the real estate bubble collapsed. It wasn't just real estate bubble, but that was largely the problem. Way back in the 1980s, leading to this lost decade of the 1990s, and no matter what fiscal authorities had done or monetary authorities had done by the late 1990s, nothing seemed to work. So Krugman opined upon liquidity, a subject he obviously knows very little about, and said, I've got the answer. The answer is to be irresponsible. In 1999, Krugman gave a little speech about a paper he had written on this very topic where he called the speech thinking about a liquidity trap. And I'm going to read you a passage here. Monetary expansion is irrelevant because the private sector does not expect it to be sustained because they believe that given a chance, the central bank will revert to type and stabilize prices. And in order to make monetary policy effective, at least in a simple model, the central bank must overcome a credibility problem that is the inverse of our usual one. In a liquidity trap, monetary policy does not work because the markets expect the bank to revert as soon as possible to the normal practice of stabilizing prices. To make it effective, the central bank must credibly promise to be irresponsible, to maintain its expansion after the recession is passed. And in April of 2013, a fellow by the name of Haruhiko Kuroda took Krugman's words to heart and began what has become known as QQE, an experiment in going huge, doing what Krugman specifically said, to credibly promise to be irresponsible. Not only did they did not only did they do these huge, massive purchases of assets, the Bank of Japan also created first an inflation target of 1% and then immediately doubled it to 2%. They were so confident that this massive QE was going to work, they were going to target double the inflation rate that they thought originally. In, a, in the initial phase, the first early days and first early months in 2013 under QQE, Reaction was somewhat mixed, but a lot of people were believing that this was massive stimulus. This was a huge step toward what Krugman had said. The Bank of Japan was becoming irresponsible. And worse, by, by doing the 2% inflation tar target, they were promising to continue to be irresponsible in exactly the fashion that Mr. Krugman advised. Uh, notably, the Chinese were a little bit upset by this. Um, Gao Zheqing, who was the president of China's Investment Corp, which is the massive sovereign wealth fund at the time, um, he took the highly unusual step of making his 
negative thoughts known about QQE. What he said was the new Japanese government was aiming to boost its exports at other countries' expenses via a weaker currency. Treating the neighbors as your garbage bin and starting a currency war would not only be dangerous for others, but eventually be bad for yourself. What he was saying is that this seemed to be a powerful way to print money, thereby ruining the yen and therefore beggar thy, beggar thy neighbor policy, boosting Japanese exports, which by the way, which was one of the benefits that the Bank of Japan was counting on. And it wasn't just this monetary program, this, this credibly promised to be irresponsible. Remember uh, Shinzo Abe, the prime minister at the time, his three arrows approach started with the Bank of Japan, combined it with massive fiscal stimulus, and then structural labor market reforms, the three arrows that were going to solve Japan's intractable problems, starting with this credible promise to be irresponsible. So how did it all work out? Well, it has done us a huge favor because any open-minded and honest historians among, among the bunch have a, no, a wealth of empirical evidence showing it didn't do a damn thing. Certainly not was intended and nowhere near having any impact that was promised from the very beginning. But as I said, this is a problem not just for 2013 or for historians looking back on this period. It is a problem, a big one, for today. We'll get into that in just a minute, but first, I'm Jeff. This is Eurodollar University. Thank you very much for joining me. As always, if you're interested, Eurodollar University has memberships available at our website where you get exclusive video content, background details. We even did a series early, uh, late last year. We went over why QE had failed, what QE actually is, and where it was supposed to go but never did. We also have uh, research subscriptions available. I do a daily briefing in partnership with Markets Insider Pro. That's Stephen Van Meter, Tracy Schuchart. They have wonderful stuff available there. Again, Markets Insider Pro. I also do a daily deep dive analysis where we dive deep into these types of topics, history, implications, consequences, because they're necessary to understanding where we are today, how we got here, and where we, are mar where we might be going tomorrow. So all the information available, eurodollar.university. April 2013, Hiroko Kuroda said, yep, sign me up for QQE. This is going to be the biggest thing ever. We credibly, we are promising to be irresponsible and to stay irresponsible until inflation or the CPI rate, which in Japan meant the core CPI, CPI rate, less fresh food, gets to 2% and stays there. We're going to keep buying these assets, creating bank reserves out of thin air until we have to do it. And Mr. Kuroda is finally retiring after 10 years. And you'd think, given all those original promises, that he would be given a hero's welcome, a, a celebration of his later life's work, an entire decade spent fixing Japan. But no, QQE is still ongoing to a certain extent. And Mr. Kuroda is retiring without having done anything. How can this possibly be? Well, right from the very beginning, QQE was in trouble. So they began it, the, the, these larger, larger scale asset purchases that's credibly promised to be irresponsible in April of 2013. But already by 2014, a year later, you could tell it was not having the intended effect. In fact, by the end of October 2014, the Bank of Japan got together again and said, we need to do more asset purchases. 
As I always say about quantitative easing, how can it be quantitative if you've always got to continually change the quantity? They're just throwing numbers. They're just throwing all this stuff at the system and hoping something works. By promising to be irresponsible, it has to be credible. And it can only be credible if you know what the hell you're doing. And that's what we keep coming back to. So when the Bank of Japan got together and voted for upping QQE in 2014, it wasn't something to be inspired for. It was one of those warning signs that said, this is not going well. In fact, the Wall Street Journal, the Wall Street Journal, forever the cheerleader for modern central banking, had to write this in October 2014. Japan's central bank and its main government pension fund said Friday, they would pump trillions more yen into the country's sputtering economy. Faced with fresh evidence that Prime Minister Shinzo Abe's campaign to end the country's long bout with deflation was faltering, the two institutions steered Japanese economic policy into the uncharted territory of extreme stimulus that appeared to go beyond the often radical measures taken by other advanced economies in recent years. It says it right here in the quote. They always say they would pump trillions more yen into the country's sputtering economy. If you're pumping trillions of yen into a sputtering economy, would it continue to sputter? And this has been a problem going back all the way to the beginning. As I mentioned in my introduction at the uh, Eurodollar University's memberships, we've gone through the, the math as well as the background about how QE has failed repeatedly. And from the very first quantitative easing all the way back in March of 2001, yeah, it's been more than 20 years, especially in Japan, they always say the same thing, that it pours or injects a large amount of money into any economy. When that can't be the case, we keep seeing it fail time and time and time again, including QQE, which was the biggest one of them all. But yet, rather than admit that this is not liquidity, that this is not pouring trillions of yen or dollars or euros into the real economy, economists and central bankers instead lie more to you. They come up with other excuses. Let's go back to Paul Krugman, this time in 2015. This is now more than two years after QQE, two years after the Bank of Japan took his advice to credibly promise to be irresponsible, or at least to promise to be irresponsible. Credibility is an entirely different matter. And even Krugman knew by 2015 it wasn't happening. So looking for a way to get, extricate himself from this intellectual trap, not liquidity trap, that he had pushed Japan into, or at least had helped nudge them in this direction, he started looking for scapegoats. What he said was, if that's the reality, we'll get to that in a minute, even a credible promise to be irresponsible might do nothing. He didn't say that before, did he? If nobody believes that inflation will rise, it won't. The only way to be at all sure raising inflation is to accompany a changed monetary regime with a burst of fiscal stimulus. Wait a minute. Abenomics was both of those things. Actually, it was three things. It added a third one. Abenomics was to credibly promise to be irresponsible by the Bank of Japan or promise to be irresponsible by the Bank of Japan. And it was a large burst of stimulus. I'm calling shenanigans here on Krugman, and he knows it too. This, the failure wasn't the lack of fiscal stimulus. Maybe it was about the promise to be responsible. Because listen to what he said. Rather than pour trillions into an economy and that creates inflation, what he said was, if nobody believes that inflation will rise, it won't. 
This expectations nonsense. That inflation is nothing more than whether or not you and I believe in it. And remember, this is what uh, Haruhiko Kuroda admitted in 2016 when he said that, uh, I trust that many of you are familiar with the story of Peter Pan, in which it says, the moment you doubt whether you can fly, you cease forever to be able to do it. Yes, that is what we need, a positive attitude and conviction. They all believe that inflation isn't a monetary phenomenon, it is a fairy tale. If they tell you a credible enough story about money printing, then you'll act as if money has been printed. But what if money hasn't been printed? What if that's really the problem? What if the banking system is so broken, which actually does create money, that it doesn't want to create enough money to allow for an economy to grow at its full potential? So Krugman was talking about a liquidity trap when he had no idea what liquidity even was. Nor does the Bank of Japan. Everybody just assumes that bank reserves are liquidity and bank reserves are money. And furthermore, not only the liquidity and money, that they find their way it somehow into the real economy. So all the Bank of Japan has to do is create bank reserves, voila, magic, inflation in the real economy. But it never, ever happens. So throughout its history, throughout this tortured decade in the Bank of Japan, They've tried one scheme after another to make it more effective. Uh, famously, in early 2016, the Bank of Japan added negative interest rates to those bank reserves, which essentially penalized banks for having them. What they said was, you're going to end up with bank reserves at the end of this quantitative easing transaction, which is nothing more than an asset swap. So now you have an asset that yields negative, which means you're going to pay a liquidity penalty or you're going to pay a penalty to own a safe asset. Therefore, the Bank of Japan said, well, the creating of reserves isn't working. Maybe if we penalize the banks that are holding them, they'll actually then have to go out into the real economy and lend or buy riskier securities in order to, to create uh, enough of a return to pay this penalty that we're imposing on them. That didn't work either. And of course, came along YCC or yield curve control later in 2016, which is really nothing more than the Bank of Japan's scheme to lower the amount of purchases that, that, they, that was required to maintain the illusion of Peter Pan flying and the economy flying, which that didn't work either. So they added not just NERP and YCC, the Bank of Japan then said, we're going to overshoot. Talk about promising to be irresponsible. They said we're no, we're no longer going to just target a two percent inflation rate. We're going to let economy. We're going to let the economy run so hot that inflation is going to get out of control, and we're going to let it happen. They kept going back time and time and time again to this belief stuff. What did Krugman say? If nobody believes that inflation will rise, it won't. And so when inflation doesn't rise, they all believe that it's lack of belief. When it might more simply be Occam's razor here, maybe it's just lack of money. Maybe bank reserves are not all they're cracked up to be. And that's what Bank of Japan has done us this huge favor with QQE, because the numbers are truly staggering. The balance sheet expanded between April of 2013 and April of 2022. So that's the last year where it was at its absolute peak. Between those two Aprils, nine years, the Bank of Japan's balance sheet expanded by more than half a quadrillion yen. The number is 573.9 trillion, or four and a half times larger than when QQE began. And the level of bank reserves is even more incredible. It has risen, it had risen, risen 
It had increased by 445 trillion in those nine years, an expansion of more than 10 times. There were 10 times as much bank reserves in April of 2022 as in April of 2013. And yet, through that entire period, did it work? Let's go back to the Wall Street Journal just recently, because just recently, Mr. Kuroda, as I said, announced his retirement. And here's how the Wall Street Journal sums up the last 10 years of the most powerful monetary instrument ever conceived by the wickedness of man and his money printer. The next Bank of Japan governor is likely to find a challenge similar to the one that faced departing governor Haruhiko Kuroda when he arrived a decade ago. Stubbornly low inflation and a sluggish economy to go with it. The difference is that Kazuo Idu, expected to be nominated Tuesday to succeed Mr. Kuroda, will likely take office with less confidence that Japan's central bank can fix those problems which date to the 1990s. Credibly promised to be irresponsible? First of all, they have no credibility left as the, bank of Japan, as the Wall Street Journal is talking about the Bank of Japan. They didn't do what they said they were going to do. There's no money. There's no yen being poured into, into the real economy. There's nothing being poured into the real economy. They're lying to you to get you to believe a fairy tale, thinking that in believing the fairy tale, the economy can listen to, like Peter Pan says, fly all its own. So who cares? This is 10 years. This is Japan. Well, obviously we should care because this isn't just about Japan. Japan's QQE is simply the most prominent example and the biggest failure of, QQ, of QQE as well as QE. But QE has failed in every jurisdiction it's ever, it's ever been tried for the very same reasons. It's not about liquidity. It's not about money printing. It's instead about the psychological manipulation. And that's a big problem. If, for example, you're Jay Powell and you see the economic risks in the economy in 2023 are starting to mount and you tell the public, oh, don't worry about recession. We've got all the tools to save the economy should it, should it be required. When the biggest tool in their biggest toolbox, their toolkit, has already been proven beyond every shadow of every doubt to be in hugely ineffective, so ineffective that it left no impression on the economy whatsoever. As the Wall Street Journal article says, and we have to agree with it because all the statistics show it, Japan is in the same problem today that it was in the 1990s for 20 some years and 26 or 27 numbers of QE, QQE being one of dozens of them. It doesn't work. And there's even a bigger problem here too. So as Jay Powell or Christine Lagarde says, we're not worried about recession. We can save the economy if we need to when they can't. Think about it from the perspective of a real money liquidity provider. One of those commercial banks who knows QE doesn't work, who saw QQE fail spectacularly. What do you think then? You're a liquidity provider. You know the central bank's QE is worthless, but yet that's all they have. And that's what they keep telling the public works. You know that there is no effective liquidity backstop. So when the feces and fans get closer and closer together, what are you going to do? Understanding that QE is nothing more than smoke and mirrors, it's Peter Pan, you're going to pull back from your liquidity providing activities. Liquidity itself isn't a trap. It becomes backwards elasticity. It becomes 
the very thing that QE is supposed to prevent. And we've seen numerous examples of this right from 2008, the doctrine of abundant reserves. There were abundant reserves in the worst part of the crisis in 2008, but there wasn't abundant money. We saw this in September of 2019, where Jay Powell admitted the level of bank reserves was allegedly sufficient, but yet banks, dealers, liquidity providers did not provide liquidity. March of 2020, another example. QE was announced on a late on a Sunday and the markets all tanked thereafter. And again, last September, September of 2022, we may not recognize it as the same sort of liquidity problem, but there it was, taking down, almost taking down the gilt market in the UK, as well as, we may have noticed, several small countries and maybe some larger ones like Pakistan are already in the line of liquidity fire. It's not a liquidity trap. It's because central banks are not actual central banks. They're trying to be Peter Pan. And in this world, we can't operate a monetary system on Peter Pan. No wonder it's failed spectacularly. But all we need, we need people to be open and honest, to examine the evidence, to see all these things and make these connections, to stop listening to central bankers before it gets to be too late. I'm Jeff. This is Eurodollar University. Thank you very much for joining me. As always, a huge, enormous, sincere thank you to Eurodollar University members, as well as our research subscribers. And until next time, take care.